Welcome to Insight into Teaching Intro Psychology, a McGraw-Hill informative audio series. These podcasts feature subject matter experts, instructors, and authors discussing psychology-related topics in higher education. Welcome, everybody, to the second installment of the Psychology Podcast. My name is AJ LaFerrera. I am on the marketing team at McGraw-Hill. And today, we are covering the learning chapter in the Introductory Psychology Curriculum. Uh, I'm also joined by three excellent instructors. Um, I'll go, we'll go around and introduce ourselves. Mike, do you want to kick us off? Sure. So my name is Mike Colbert. I'm an assistant professor and chair of the psychology department at Camden County College in Blackwood, New Jersey, so it's the southern part of the state. And I'll also serve as the National Council uh, Vice President of Beta for the Eastern Region. And my name is Bob Feldman, and I am a member of the Psychological and Brain Sciences Department at UMass, Amherst, and I'm also Deputy Chancellor there. Um, and I actually hail from New Jersey, so I'm a Jersey boy, uh, just like Mike. <laughs> and I'm Sarita Washington. I am the psychology coordinator and instructor at Rowan College at Burlington County. And I really enjoy what I do, so I'm really pleased to be here with my other guests. Terrific. Well, thank you all for joining us. Uh, for those of you that had a chance to listen to our last podcast, you'll notice that the um, layout will be very similar to last time. We're going to start with some philosophical approaches to teaching the learning chapter. And then partway through, we're going to move into some practical applications that you can potentially use in the classroom. So without any further ado, we'll, we'll go ahead and get started. Um, let's start with philosophical approaches to the learning chapter. So when you guys enter into this chapter, or you see this chapter sitting on your schedule for the semester, what are your goals in terms of what you want students to walk away from after you've finished teaching the learning chapter? So one of the things that I think is important to remember, and we all know that, you know, psychology, the, the exciting thing is we have so many different majors that are now taking intro to psychology. So keeping that in mind, you know, I think my goal for this chapter, it's a really fun chapter. It's a very applicable chapter. So not getting caught up in the nitty-gritty of the terms and, and confusing them. You've got the education majors that are going to use this in the classroom. You've got the business majors that are going to use this on the job as bosses and supervisors. So just getting them to have a real good, firm understanding of you know, this, the, the principles of learning and then how to use them and, and how to see them in everyday life. I concur 100%. I think that, you know, what, the way I explain it to my students is you already know this stuff. You just don't have the language for it. So now we're going to match what you know with actually the theory or the language behind it and put it together. And so similar, you know, similarly, my goal is to make sure that students can really apply this in, in everyday life and get it. I don't want them to walk away confused. I'd like for them to be able to speak with confidence about positive and negative reinforcements. And I'm sure we'll talk a little bit later on about some of the areas of psychology that can be confusing for students and how we tackle that um, respectively. But yeah, that's one of my major goals is to make sure that my students feel confident with the new language that they'll be learning in the chapter and to be able to use it. Yeah, and my, my goal for this chapter is actually similar to my goals for, for every other chapter, the philosophy behind it. Um, I, I want to, first of all, demystify the language uh, because language is very daunting, um, get them comfortable with it, but above all, understand how they can use this material in their own lives, how this has meaning to them on a 
personal level, how they can apply this to problems that they encounter in terms of their own learning um, and understand other people better. So, so it's the, the philosophy behind this chapter is, for me, exactly the same as the philosophy I bring to teaching the entire course. Great. So one of the things that we tackled last week was things within this chapter that you either do or don't cover or maybe that you cover more or less of. So when you think about the learning chapter, are there certain areas that you skip that you would traditionally find taught or are there certain areas that you expand on? I think for me, this is a chapter that I, I pretty much cover the whole thing. I mean, it's unlike some of the other chapters where I can cut out you know bits and pieces. I, I pretty much cover this one from beginning to end. And it flows nicely and the kids seem to be engaged throughout the whole thing. So I don't cut much out of this one. I think the content builds as well and so it's hard to exclude something from this chapter if anything i'll kind of add a little bit more context so one of the things i'll add in will be biographical information about bf skinner uh, to give some context as to how he came up with this theory a little bit about his life or i love talking about pavlov as being a failed experimenter because i kind of use it as a larger life lesson i mean his experiment is failing he should have stopped most people would say all right i give up instead he says okay but let me figure out why it's failing. Let me investigate what's going on here. And with that investigation, we now have classical conditioning. And so I kind of use that as a metaphor for students to kind of suggest that they should keep going even when there's a suggestion that you might not be, let's say, on the right path, then maybe examine why you're not on the right path and then think about what you can learn from that experience. And, and I think that's a really good point because it also what I, I point out is that serendipity plays a big role in science and so I think it this chapter allows us to, to impart some larger lessons about about learning and about science in general uh, this chapter is also interesting because there there's a temporal nature to it it really does build up you know first we have classical conditioning then we go to operant then we talk about cognitive learning so and and these, these things built upon one another in a way that a lot of other topics I think in, in intro psych don't have that same feature. Great. So um, what about where this the learning chapter falls in the context of your curriculum? So we've heard that some instructors, they lead with the learning chapter because there's lessons they think students can pull with them. Where does it fall for you guys when you teach introductory psychology? Well, for me, I kind of leave it right in the middle. I use it as a way to get the students to re-engage. You know, the first few chapters can be a little uh, maybe less boring, less uh, difficult to get them really engaged. So by the time we pass that and we get some momentum, like Sarita, we were talking earlier, these are now the students that have dropped. They were out, the students that are in there, they're in there for the rest of the semester. And then we get to this chapter. And again, it's, it's just it's a fun chapter, students engage. So for me, I, I kind of leave it right in the middle. It, it, it just helps us to pick up that when we hit the hump and we start heading into the, the final stretch. I think it just gives them some momentum. And, and for me too, I, I'm the same, the same category here. Um, I like it the fourth and fifth week um, because, yes, first of all, the students are there for the, the long haul. And secondly, it's about the time when students are beginning to have exams. And um, there are a lot of lessons that I like to draw from the learning chapter in terms of personal study habits, in terms of you know, how you can use this material 
in being a more effective student. And they're not quite as receptive at that beginning because they haven't they haven't had a lot of exams. And they, you know, they're 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 sure um, that they're going to do well. Um, they start getting a little worried in the, the fourth or fifth week, and because the content of this chapter really um, allows students to learn some lessons about how to be a good student, um, I find it a, a good place um, to to give that material to them. Yes. Um, similarly, I, for me, it's chapter four, and so I think it's important to give some context to the students when chapters one and two typically about the history of psych and research. So I think students need to have some foundational knowledge as it pertains to research to be able to understand some of the experiments that were conducted and how we attained our data and to be able to kind of analyze it in a critical manner. And so getting to about chapter four, we can jumpstart their systems again and get them fired up about the subject matter. And at the same time, they kind of have a, a small foundation uh, because of chapters one and two to build on from there. Great. Well, before we move on to the practical applications, anything else that you guys on a higher level want to share about the learning chapter? I, for me, the, the hardest part of this chapter is the language. Um, you know, all these terms, condition, respond, they're all bad translations from Russian, and it makes it really hard for students. And um, I spend a little time talking about that and explaining to them that, yeah, this stuff is hard and it's confusing, but you're going to get it. And I use, I think, enough examples um, to make it clear that this is not just about dogs salivating, but things that really affect their lives and can improve their lives. Yeah, I agree. I think that the key to this one is the examples, you know, really using examples to demonstrate the terms, but then simplifying those terms. You know, we're talking about unconditioned versus condition. You know, I say the U's stick together and the C's stick together, you know. And so and we'll go through some other ideas that we have, but you got to really just make this simple so that, you know, their eyes don't start crossing heads or spinning as we start using more of the technical terminology. But I think the examples are, are really huge in this chapter. I also break it down. Yeah, I think that's important. So I'll do something as simple as saying, okay, let's take a look at un. Un means what? Then someone will say not. Okay, not what? What does condition mean when you yep. hear that in everyday That's language? Great. Yeah. What does it mean to you? And so really just kind of get that they get that term first and then moving forward from there. So you're right about the importance of really getting with the language and then having to make that translation, then we can actually use the examples. So let's move into examples because it sounds like we're kind of naturally progressing there. Um, Bob, you said that this chapter is more than just salivating dogs. Are there examples that you guys use to open this particular class? And how much time do you spend covering learning? Is it one class, two classes? What does that look like for you guys? For me, it's a full week. Uh, I mean, that's either three 50-minute classes or two 75-minute classes. There's a lot of material, a lot, a lot of growth. And, and I try to I do demonstrations. I have filling out worksheets. I, have, um, I just have them do a lot of stuff that I think gets them to understand what it's all about. I do... One of the examples I use in class demonstrations, I use a shaping example where we uh, went very, I, I teach very large classes, typically with 450 students, and uh, I take one brave student and send him or her out of the room and tell the class, come up with a series of behaviors that we want them to carry out, and then, like, go to the corner and 
kneel down, or you know, so it can be totally crazy. Then the, that that poor <laughs> portrait comes back, and um, we use applause in terms of shaping. And it is amazing that you can get people doing things that are that are totally wacky, um, just through you know, using applause and withdrawing the applause. They get it, and it is the best example of shaping. Class never forgets that kind of demonstration. I think demonstrations and making it applicable so so important for this chapter and so for me something that in that same vein I give my students the extra credit opportunity to try to classically condition someone in their lives and I just you know I say make sure you don't break any laws because I'm not bailing you out <laughs> <laughs> but uh, think of something and they do have to kind of present the idea to me ahead of time to let me know what they're thinking about doing and then I've had some moms classically condition their kids which has been really fun um, and even operant conditioning with regard to cleaning their room I've had um, some partners kind of classically condition their other partner. And so it's fun because then they'll bring those examples up in class. And sometimes they'll actually even have a video recording and we'll be able to play a snippet of it in class to show the nature of the conditioning uh, in real life. Now I have learned over the years that I have to make sure, as we mentioned earlier, that my examples are contemporary. So I you know, have a lot of old school examples that really resonate with me. So for example, the Friday the 13th hockey mask to scares the daylights out of me. But when my students see something like that, they, that wouldn't be example, an example of conditioning because for them it's just a hockey mask on a dark background. It's nothing scary about that. So thinking about um, how to make my examples relevant to what's been occurring in the last, let's say, 10 years um, is something I've been working on. And that's been an exciting part of developing my, les my lecture and my lesson plan to make sure that I kind of add in what's going on right now. And to take both what Bob and Sarita said, I informally will challenge the students, see if you can go ahead and condition another professor to stand mm -hmm. in a certain part in the room. You know, look bored when they're standing where you don't want them to stand. Start raising your hand and applause and see if you can get that professor to kind of move where you want them to. Uh, but I do that informally. I haven't, that's a good idea to actually give some extra credit for it. <laughs> yeah. don't, 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 don't tell them it's from me, though. <laughs> uh, but to, to kick it off, like Sarita said, I've also used the music from Jaws. So before saying anything, just have that playing and kind of see what happened and then ask the students, you know, what just happened? And, you know, did your heart start racing a little bit? And I, again, I think we're getting to the point where I've got to come a little bit more modern with, <laughs> with an example. But, uh, but it's fun yeah, like, doing yeah. it that way. Yeah. And it's great to have the students generate their own examples. Once you kind of kickstart it, I kind of see it as planting the seed and then you start to see those light bulbs going yeah. out all around the room. And then they say, oh, is that like when and the next thing you know, they have example after example. Sure. That's lots of fun. Um, other things I do include interjecting scenarios in the middle of my slides. So when we talk about punishment, I'll say I have a slide where it's like your teenage daughter comes home late after curfew. You say she's grounded and has to stay home for the next two weeks. Is this punishment as defined by Skinner? And so then we talk about that. What are the elements of punishment? What does Skinner even say about punishment? Should you be using more reinforcement? What would make this a punishment for this child? Have they had ineffective punishments in their own lives? And so then we get a chance to kind of explore that concept in more detail. So interjecting little scenarios and even using technology like poll everywhere outputs, you can actually insert images in your polls. And so if I want my students to be able to give a real-time response, 
with a survey. So I think I have one where it's like a, a cat has been classically conditioned to stay away from the lawn because there's a dog, an attacking dog on the lawn or something. But rather than using words, I'll use pictures or emojis and then I'll have my students identify what's the neutral stimulus, the unconditional, unconditional stimulus and so forth. So finding ways to present the examples outside of, um, I do use worksheets, but outside of that, uh, to try to get them to kind of get it is important. Those are really great examples. What about stories? Are there specific stories that you use to help make the content relatable? Because I know we all mentioned earlier in the podcast, making things relatable. Are there stories in addition to the examples that you use? There are for me. I mean, a lot of people don't realize that the um, African pouched rat has been operantly conditioned to detect mines in Africa. And so in Africa, there in over um, 70, I think, countries, there are landmines that are dangerous for the individuals who live there. And they needed to find an animal that was light enough not to be able to set off the mine, but also uh, that could be led on a leash and that would respond favorably to operant conditioning. So they learned that these rats really like bananas. I don't know why I hate bananas. <laughs> they really like bananas. And so from the time that they're six weeks old, they train these rats to be able to um, use stimulus discrimination to be able to detect the TNT in the landmine. So they start with kind of adding small portions of TNT to soil and reinforcing them when they put, of course, in shaping, putting their nose or head somewhere near that. And so eventually they're able to kind of shape the rat to be able to scent detection for the TNT, for the bananas that they love so much. And in so doing, they're able to save lives. Mike, Bob, any examples aside? Yeah, well, I don't know my, my kids are going to film it. Um, but um, we, we toilet trained all three of our kids using opera conditioning and went through this process of um, you know, rewards, candy, and, and um, you know, very consciously doing it, and it works, and it worked really well. And, you know, and I, the story was much more effective when the kids when we were actually doing it with our kids. Our kids were young, you know, they are growing up, but um, uh, it's, it's a very effective technique, and, and um, it works. Talk about inserting your family in your life. I know, I know. I think my daughter has to be mortified. <laughs> I have used her as so many examples <laughs> in class, but that's because it works. You know, right. speaking of when she was two, terrible two, so-called, with the tantrums, it was easy to apply Skinner's theory and to talk about not reinforcing the behavior and why you don't always have to resort to punishment. You can just not reinforce the behavior that you want to get rid of. And so she would tantrum in the grocery store and I would literally turn my back and kind of look around as if I didn't see her until she kind of started to slow down to the crying and then I would turn around and face her and go, there you are, I was looking all over for you. Eventually, she stopped the tantruming and she was able to use her words to communicate how she felt. And so just being able to use personal examples, I think sometimes students find when we use examples from our own lives, it encourages them to think of examples on their own as well. Again, perfect chapter if you have a family and children. I have six children, so uh, I've got lots of examples in this chapter. I mean, operant conditioning, I can think of a thousand of them, and I give them. But one that comes to my mind that I talk about is my son has uh, a lot of allergies. So in classical conditioning, I tell them about all his visits to the 
emergency room and you know he ate peanut he had something he shouldn't have had so every time we went to the emergency room or a doctor he was getting a shot and then he made that association and whenever you would say to him hey mikey you know we got to go to the doctor we got to make a you know visit to the emergency room he starts crying you know am i going to get a shot am i going to get a shot he's all upset so then one day we get to the emergency room and i think it was like power rangers or something something he just started to get interested in well they had stickers and at the end of the visit, they give him the sticker. So the very next time we had to go make a visit to the emergency room, instead of saying, Daddy, are they going to give me a shot and get all upset? He said to me, am I going to get another sticker? So it was able to use that to show how we you know, have the associations, conditioning, but then how we can uncondition and recondition. And again, we see that in doctor offices with the, the toy box and the stickers and the candy. So again, the kids, family, this is a chapter they learn a lot more about me and my family. Mm-hmm. So that's great. Mm-hmm. But I think it's that sharing that creates an, a learning environment that is engaging and one where students then feel vulnerable enough to um, be able to share with us yes. as well and to volunteer their examples and where we can get in and maybe correct or coach or give feedback. But just that we're willing to share our own examples, I think sometimes yeah. encourages students to maybe step out of their comfort zone and begin to kind of volunteer their ideas. The, the other piece of this is that um, I, I, I feel some responsibility in terms of educating good practices and um, dealing with other people, and, and particularly this chapter in, in terms of spanking children, um, which is obviously gets into punishment and positive reinforcement kinds of things. And being able to talk about that social issue, which I feel very strongly about and which the data are very clear that spanking is ineffective, it doesn't work, and that positive reinforcement works. Um, I think, number one, it's our responsibility to talk about that data. And number two, you know, when I talk about my own kids and how they were raised without spanking, a lot, for a lot of kids, they really believe that spanking is the only way that it works, it's effective, it's the way to go. Being able to say, okay, well, you know, I raised three kids, and we never use that as a technique, um, it's a very powerful message and very reinforcing in and of itself. So so I think, you know, I think being able to tell these stories about experiences in our own lives and couple that with the research data uh, makes the course much more valuable for students and it's, you know, the learning section particularly meaningful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's great um, when I can apply my clinical background a little bit to this chapter. And so I've done a lot of work with children and families. I've worked a lot in the community at community mental health centers. And the most frequent diagnosis for children in a community mental health center is ADHD or oppositional defiant disorder. And so talking about how I help um, parents to form a behavioral plan and why you have to understand what's reinforcing for one child is not reinforcing for another child and really be able to figure out that's the first key if you'd like to reinforce a behavior use the appropriate reinforcer and so a reinforcer you know Skinner was criticized for saying for his theory initially people thought it was bribery and still um, we'll have students who come into our class today and say well isn't that just bribing somebody for doing what they're supposed to be doing but um, you know my rebuttal to that is always number one don't we all enjoy rewards if I gave you $100 for every time you gave me a correct answer, you wouldn't consider that bribery. You would love it. Um, and, you know, also there's this idea that um, you do have to, we do operate on 
reinforcements, but it doesn't always have to be tangible. It doesn't always have to be money or candy or something else. It could be, you know, I've worked with parents who have said, hey, you know your son likes to play Xbox. So maybe with the improvement of his grades, now what you're going to do is spend some time on a Friday night letting him kick your butt in Xbox. And that could be a reinforcement for him, something that, you know, he would want. And so figuring out what is reinforcing for your child that allows for us to kind of talk about the different kinds of reinforcers, primary versus secondary reinforcers. We have the whole debate about whether or not money is a primary or secondary reinforcer. And so that becomes a really cool discussion too. So I think my challenge is really how to scale it down and do this within three or four lectures. Yes. Because I think you could go on and on with it. And Serena makes a good point. Those of us that have clinical experience, bringing that into it. This chapter is cool too because you can tie it in a lot of different directions. Again, me leaving it in the middle, I can go back to chapter one and tie it into some of the theory, right? the behaviorist. And then chapter two, we can talk a little bit about the brain. And then, then we can jump ahead a little bit and think about development chapter. Um, and it just allow, and then psychological disorders. Right? I'll bring in a clinical example of somebody I've worked with with a phobia and how phobias are learned. And why are they, why are they so treatable? They're treatable because they're learned. Mm -hmm. So you can jump around in the text, make some connections from the past, where you're going in the, in the future, but using the clinical stuff, using personal things, you just make this thing come alive. Well, we are approaching time, so I want to make sure I leave a little bit of time for some parting thoughts um, from each of you. So any volunteers to, to go first? Well, let me try and sum up my excitement about this particular chapter, and that is that it really does address some very important social issues. Um, uh, I already talked about spanking. Um, it also addresses um, observational learning in terms of violent movies, violent media. Does that have an effect? How long that effect lasts? Um, what do the data tell us? So so for me, the, the, the allure of this chapter is that it brings in uh, number one ways that, that students can um, behave towards others in more effective ways and it brings in some important kinds of social issues. It allows us to talk about the history of psychology um, very clearly in terms of the, the organization of, of what we present. So, and, and learning underlies virtually everything else that we talk about in terms of the rest of the uh, the chapters in the book. So I think it's a, a critically important chapter. Bob did a good job summing that one up. Um, yeah, so when I, you know, when I think about this chapter, going back to what I said initially, wanting students to see that they see this already in their lives. So for example, one of the concepts they struggle with sometimes is negative reinforcements. But in New Jersey, we have billboards all up and down the highway that read, click it or ticket meaning that if you don't put your seatbelt on, you'll get a ticket. And so just putting that up on the board and saying, okay, what is the message here? And then how is this negative reinforcement starts the conversation. And so I think it's important for students to come away with the idea that you already kind of have this knowledge, you just don't have the language for it. Let me give you the language for it. And let's then kind of expand upon what you already know and make that a little bit deeper. Let's begin to analyze and synthesize as we think about Bloom's taxonomy. And so that's the part that kind of gets me re really fired up about this chapter and about you know introducing students to a new way of thinking about business and marketing and 
um, abnormal psychology and developmental psychology and all the various, how they all kind of connect and that they'll repeatedly come back to some of these theories uh, in no matter, probably no matter what their major is, they will probably come back some way, shape or form to this chapter, to the, some of the contents covered in the chapter. And for me, one of the major tenets day one I say about basic psychology, introduction to psychology, is that psychology is all around us. Everywhere we look, everything you turn on the news, every news story, we can connect it in, in some way. Uh, so some of my assignments are intended just for that. And then this chapter is perfect. You know, it's, and I go back to that. Do you remember first day of class I said psychology is all around us? And then we just make all these different connections. So it just goes right to the theme that I hit in day one. Great. Well, first of all, thank you, Mike, Bob, Sarita, for joining us on the second installment of our podcast. Thank you to everybody who is listening. And we will see you again in a couple of weeks. Thanks, everybody. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. you. This has been a McGraw-Hill production. Thank you for listening.